right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Today's episode is with Mike DeVries, who you are going to be hearing a lot from in the coming episodes of Taurus Sauce, our travel series that is on YouTube. We are traveling the state of Michigan. New episodes premiere at 9 p.m. Eastern on Wednesdays. That series is brought to you by our friends at Precision Pro, which we're going to talk about here soon. But uh, this conversation with Mike spans you know, a lot of his career, a lot of what he's got going on down under what he's already done down under, and uh, what he's done in Michigan. And I think we're going to hear hear from him a lot in the future because this guy is a very, very talented architect. And if you've ever been lucky enough to play any of his courses, uh, you can kind of see what we're talking about here. And we play about five of them, I think, at, throughout this series. And uh, a bunch of those are in this week's episode in Grand Rapids, The Mines, Pilgrim's Run, and Diamond Springs. We talk about some a little bit about all of those. We kind of spend a lot of time talking about Australia. So apologies if we didn't spend enough time talking about Michigan. We got enough Michigan content uh, on our YouTube channel, which, of course, again, brought to you by our friends at Precision Pro Golf. In golf, confidence is a wonderful thing. Doubt is not. That's why everyone at No Laying Up carries Precision Pro Golf range finders. Precision Pro believes that golf is enjoyed most when you're confident that's exactly what their products are designed to do deliver confidence and our listeners get $20 off any precision pro golf rangefinder using coupon code no laying up that's all one word you get industry leading customer support free lifetime battery replacements and the completely free precision pro golf app helps you measure everything that matters to your golf game distance putts fairways hit and more uh, when everything's made to measure nothing else compares to precision pro so go to precisionprogolf.com use coupon code no laying up all one word at checkout for $20 off a precision pro golf rangefinder you'll never second guess your distance you'll never second guess adding precision pro to your golf bag swing with confidence hit more greens with precision pro golf Here's Mike DeVries. Everyone always wants to start with background. I know you've been asked, you know, a million times about your background, but I'm going to wait at least a couple questions to get going on that because I can't even wait to hear. Uh, I can't even wait that long to hear about Tasmania and what you guys have going on down there. And uh, I'm up to speed a little bit, but for the listeners that maybe aren't, tell us about what, what do you have going on down there? Yeah, so uh, Seven Mile Beach is a brand new golf course project. Uh, Matt Goggin, who played on the PGA Tour for a number of years, grew up in Hobart. For people that don't understand Australian geography, Tasmania is that island that's below Melbourne, below the Bass Strait. Hobart is the capital of Tasmania. There's about 200, 250,000 people there. So it's a really good sized town, great foodie town, probably the best museum in all of Australia is there. And there's this spit of land that's seven miles long, hence the name Seven Mile Beach, that is pure sand, dunes. The airport's located on that on that spit, like on the sort of the western side of it. So the golf course site is a totally undeveloped piece of property, oceanfront dunes, and it's about two miles east of where the Hobart International Airport is. So you could you could be in the sand in the sand belt or in Sydney or whatever, and you could fly to Hobart and land, and in 15 minutes you're going to be on the first tee. It's really really cool amazing site uh dunes up to about 60 feet and then you know low profile stuff on the shoreline also so there's a there's a wide variety we're doing the first golf course for matt uh there's room for a couple other golf courses there 
and um, it's a it's super exciting. It's a great great place. The people are awesome, and uh, really can't can't wait to get there. My my uh, partner Mike Clayton, who's you know, part of Clayton DeVries and Pont, he's lives in Melbourne, so he's close. But due to the COVID and all the stuff that's going on, he he actually even can't even get to, to Hobart right now. So we're <laughs> so so we're uh, yeah we're 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 anxiously. Um, waiting to uh, have all this stuff sort of work its way out and uh we should be there uh hopefully you know mid-december pushing dirt and and you know, having fun well i i think no matter what you said in some way it was going to downplay uh a particular quote that i've read from clayton a few months ago and it has always stuck with me and it's to make just a really good golf course there would be a bit of a failure. I don't think anyone will ever build a better golf course than Royal Melbourne in Australia, but this needs to sit right underneath that. What kind of what kind of pressure is that to put on you for, before you uh, build the golf course? I'm shaking right now. Yeah. Uh, no, it's uh, it it is pretty uh, extraordinary, and of course Royal Melbourne is is quite fabulous and. Um, Clates, you know, was involved at Barnbugle Dunes, and I did Cape Wickham, and those are right behind Royal Melbourne right now. So our joke is, um, we have two and three, we want to go for one. <laughs> but I don't, I, you know, each project just evolves, and we're going to enjoy it, and it's always an interesting process, and it'll be, you know, it, it's going to be a great golf course. It's just super fantastic, and um, everybody that's involved, Matt's a really awesome guy. And, uh, you know, obviously has played all over the world, knows golf really, really well, but is entrusting us to, to do the right thing. And uh, the superintendent that we have, Tui, is, uh, grew up playing golf with Matt. Uh, it's been in the golf business forever. And so, you know, there's a really great team that, you know, we, we have assembled to, to, you know, to do this. And it, it takes a lot of people and, and a lot of time to, to get things just right. And, and we're dedicated to doing that. You know, we share a lot of our uh, opinions and takes on, on golf courses, and uh, I have my reasons for why I think Royal Melbourne is great, but I'm super keen to hear someone like yourself with your background and your experience seeing golf courses and building them as well. You know, you mentioned, you know, with, with Clates being that being the course that came out of Clates' mouth first there, and a course you hold in high regard, just simply asking it, what, what makes Royal Melbourne great? Why is that uh, so unanimously revered? It's just got all the right movements to the ground. It's undulating, but it's not like excessive ideal soils. You got this sand that's, I don't know how deep it is, a couple hundred feet or whatever, that goes down. And it, you know, it creates the great Melbourne sand belt bunkers that, you know, everybody that goes to Melbourne and then comes back, they, we, why, why can't we have bunkers like Melbourne? <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a phenomenal piece of terrain to work with, just to have that happen. And so you have great conditioning. You have unbelievable holes that have great strategy to them. There's width to it. You've got to figure out what's the best way to get to the hole. And that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people from the high level pros that go there. And sure, they, you know, they get going, they shoot a low number. That's not necessarily a bad thing. They're, they're that good. They can do that. But the average member or guest that goes there who's a bogey golfer, he's going to have some exhilarating highs and he's going to have an opportunity to make some pars or a birdie here or there. And he's going to find his ball and he's going to get around and play it. And every hole is just super dynamic, 
so so much fun and there's great holes there when you start to look at 10 uh, you look at uh, really the opening stretch like one doesn't really seem like it's a very exciting hole but you know two three four five six that whole stretch four five and six around around that you know little hill there really sets the tone for what you're going to do and what you're going to see and and what you're going to play so the aussies are really welcoming people they love their golf and it all culminates and really comes to royal melbourne all the time and they you know they hold major tournaments they have a really active membership it's uh it's a great place you said something interesting there that I think might be a good bridge into just uh, discussing your overall architecture style or your design style, which is figuring out the best way to get to a hole. And to me, that sounds very different than just hitting golf shots. Uh, and, and I'm wondering if that is uh, if I'm onto something with that with that, and kind of wondering if you could describe, you know, why using that as a north star, figuring out the best way to get to a hole, why that might be more interesting than a round of golf where you're just going around hitting uh, pretty normal golf shots. Yeah, so when you think about you know normal golf shots, I mean if you're uh, if you're just executing a great stroke, you can do that at the range, right? Uh, I mean, you know that you can hit into a simulator. You can you know you can work on it, and that's all important to like learning the game and stuff like that. But when you're out in the elements, when you know the wind is blowing out of the you know the southeast instead of the southwest or the northwest or whatever this day or that every hole has the opportunity to change. And so maybe a hole that you've played a hundred times is going to have a different flavor to it. And you're going to have to figure out what you're doing with that. And you have to have the ability to, as a golfer, you have to think, Hey, you know, I can't execute the shot that I normally execute here because I can't do that. And if you've got an opportunity or space uh, or an alternative landing area uh, layup, or in the other turn, you know, hey, I have an opportunity to really go for it right here because of what's happening and how I'm playing today, et cetera. That puts the onus on the player and engages them and really gets them excited about that hole or that, or that day or the golf shot. Any of those elements are, that you can put together makes it more and more exciting and fun for uh, a better round of golf and something you want to go back and try again. So those, those, those great courses that you play where you get off 18, you're like, I want to go right away. I want to go now. That's what you're searching for, right? You don't want to like get done and go, Oh, that was horrible. I want to have 14 beers. Cause I just, <laughs> I can't handle it. That was, that was too tough or whatever. But if they're like a golf course can be difficult, but if you had uh, really fun shots and you had opportunities to try stuff that maybe you don't get to try elsewhere or that maybe they sort of tempt you to try and maybe you shouldn't try that's a, that's a whole nother category of things we could talk about but that's engaging the golfer and that makes it makes it fun every every day yeah there's a, the things that came to mind with what you were saying there were one of the two things we're going to get to which is one the feeling i had coming off kingsley after playing 18 holes was like oh i cannot wait to go back out there this afternoon because i can unlock this i know how to do this now this 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 and this 
Uh, it may or may not have worked out that way, but that's the feeling I got walking off the 18th green. And then at Pilgrim's Run, the, the number one, that hole right there, just taught the, the different things you had to consider to get to the hole or the different route there. I just like look back at that hole wondering like, man, I, I could have played that five different ways and we're only on the very first hole. But uh, we're not to Michigan yet. We're going to get to Michigan, but uh, still, you know, we're, 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 uh, we're still on Seven Mile Beach because I want to know – what, what, what's it like trying to come up with a, a routing on land that I think you could, it sounds like the way it's been described is pretty much perfect. It sounds idyllic. It sounds like a dream job and I'm sure it is, but what are the challenges that come with, you know, a site that is as good as you guys have said it is? Well, like, like you said first, I mean, it's a lot of pressure, but you know, you kind of throw that once you're on site, you kind of throw that aside and you're just like, Hey, what's the, what, what can we do here? What's the best result? And, you know, I'm seeing something and Clates is seeing something and, and we're going to like, okay, but what about this? What about that? And so that's, you know, that's the fun part of the project of trying to figure out what's the greatest solution. And, you know, Kleitz has said it a bunch of times in various little snippets that have come out. He's, he's like, you know, we think we have a, we, th we think we have the best routing, but that's going to get tweaked. That's going to continue to evolve into something that's better. So it's an opportunity to, try certain things maybe maybe they're new things or how do how do we take what we have on the site just to make it feel like it flows and fits into the land as best as possible great sites demand you know they demand the respect there's a lot of ways you could go with something and it wouldn't work out very well and you know you could have a kind of a very dramatic site and you might not optimize the golf out of it. You know, the good golf that's making a making a golfer engage and you know be excited about something and try something. But if you if you sort of miss on a certain number of elements, then you could feel like, wow, we didn't really like we didn't get all of it out of it that we could have. And at the same token, too, when you have something that's super spectacular, you want to try and figure out how can you sort of tone that down or you know, use restraint because you don't need to do much. And that's a hard thing. It, as humans, we're trying to fix everything. You know, we're trying to like make it better and do this and do that. Sometimes you just have to go, hey, that's enough. Let's just, let's sit back and and let's try and do what's right for it. I've, I've had some really dramatic sites and thinking about Tasmania and Cape Wickham. I mean, this place is so, I mean, it's so spectacular that that was one of the main things I was thinking about. It's like, we just need to figure out how to connect the golf holes because there's so much drama here. We don't, we don't need to create drama. <laughs> we just want to figure out a way to, you know, to have people think, wow, that's, oh, I want to try this shot. And not because all you have to do is turn your head and there's another view of the ocean or there's, you know, there's the lighthouse, et cetera. And really what was the most important thing was like, can you get the golfer to focus on the shot at hand and what's going on? And we're going to have some of that at seven mile beach too, because the water's right there. It's, it's on both sides of us. There's a smaller inlet bay on the North side of the, of this spit of land. And then you have the bigger body of water to the South, right on the golf course. I'm wondering if your experience at Cape Wickham has you feeling better about the task at hand and, and accomplishing this because I've heard I've not gotten to Cape Wickham, but I've heard nothing but just absolute rave reviews. I'm looking at pictures right now on the website and I'm kicking myself for have not included it 
in the the one time that I've made it down under. And I'm wondering if what the experiences were you've learned from that and the the amazing sight there you had on King Island, and uh, and what what it's like to look back at that five six years now. I think after it has opened, and uh, what what it's like to reflect on that accomplishment. Well, there's the knowledge that yeah, you can do it. You can you can achieve that thing. I think we did a really great job there of making sure that the golf came forward and we weren't we weren't just focused on it being like wow 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 because if you just there is a lot of wow (laughs) but if you if that's all you do and you don't have good golf with it it sort of loses something because there's a lot of eye candy golf courses in the world i think that's fair to say oh sure absolutely and and you know there's a lot of stuff you know, it's one of the things, just to sort of digress for a second, but some of the things that you, you know, when you do 3D visualizations of stuff and, you know, the computer technology and all that kind of stuff is great, but it's hard to build something exactly like that. It all has to happen in the dirt. You have to like make sure that it fits. And no matter what you do, you know, technology wise to show, this is what the hole is going to look like and that. Once you get out there, there's a different sense of that, and you have to figure out how to make that fit and work. And so having a really spectacular site like Cape Wickham, uh, which Seven Mile Beach is also, and you know, thinking that we did a really good job there, I know that we can do it again, and I know that we're going to create a, a golf course that is going to be super fun to play and is going to meet you know, the expectations of everybody that we want to do. It's a lot of hard work, but... We're going to get it done. We're dedicated to doing that. That's that's why we're that's that's why we're, we've had success. And um, I think I think it's going to be a, the whole project's going to be fun doing it. And you know, I can't. I just can't wait to get back down there. When is that going to be? Yeah. What's the what's the timeline looking like? At, at, you know, in both in a perfect world and what's looking realistic with everything going on in the world. Australia is a lot more restrictive than we are. So hopefully, we're getting down there end of November. And we should be able to get to Tasmania mid-December, it sounds like, because Western Australia and Tasmania have been more restrictive just within Australia itself uh, as far as, like, letting people in and and doing that and and stuff. So before the new year, we're going to be there, and I'm shaking. I can't wait. (laughs) It is is really cool. It's it's super fun. And um, just talked with Clates this afternoon, and it looked, you know, just really looking forward to getting down there and, and you know, get making things happen. I'm, I don't need much more justification to get down there, but I think you know, with a couple of other new courses opening up in New Zealand, this opening up, and uh, you know, all the, the the slew of courses we didn't get to the first time around, we might have critical mass to finally have the full excuse to get back down there once uh, <laughs> once uh, restrictions are you know fully closer to being lifted. But I think you got to have it be. Uh, no laying up goes down under construction. You know, we'll get you guys on some equipment and get you dirty. I mean, that'd be a whole nother. That's a, that's a, that's a whole, I don't know. That's a, you got to have a new, new, new name for that kind of show or something. That'd be really awesome. (laughs) I'm a, I'm a city boy, man. I don't think I'm cut out for that life. Some of our guys might. No, I would love that. I really, I've I've visited a site of uh, Bobby Weed was designing a course here. He still is building one here. Uh, in Jacksonville, I'd never really been on on site, uh, you know, of a course being built. And man, it was kind of addicting. You know, I, I like to f- fancy myself a golf course architecture enthusiast, but 
when it comes to like actually being the creative behind it is, is something I've always had appreciation for. But, you know, even just looking at a pile of dirt, I don't think I can necessarily come up with, you know, interesting features or great golf holes or link them all together. I don't think people fully, you know, grasp all the things that have to go in consideration wise when it comes to drainage and this and, you know, all the drainages, you say that in one word, but it's a million different things you got to do in sequential order to get that, to get all that right. And uh, yeah, your, your guys' jobs, I think, are different than it's not just drawing stuff out on a piece of paper. And I think uh, for a long time, at least, I thought that was the majority of the job. There, there are a lot of aspects to it. And there's a, there's a great team that you have to have that, to make everything come out together, certainly. And, you know, for you guys and how you're looking at golf and thinking about that stuff, it, it might be interesting for you to see that. And seriously, it, it'd be awesome to have you on site because you'd see something happen. And then like six months later, here's this is this is what it is. And two years later, you know, after that, you know, golf courses evolve from from that first grow in, you know, the turf matures, everything changes. It takes time for for those things to really develop. And and what we're trying to do is, you know, on day one, when they open, we want it to look like it's been there for 100 years. And people would go, wow, that that seems like that's totally natural. I, where, how'd you guys find that you know, green site? And it might be something totally artificial. <laughs> that that happens. Like people are like, wow, that's the most natural green site I've ever seen. You know, and it's like, yeah, that was uh, that was the most unnatural one on the property. A quick break here to check in with our friends at Walker Trolley. Justin Huber, if you are listening to this, I want my Walker Trolley back. You borrowed it for Q School and haven't given it back yet. So I'm officially calling you out. The Walker Trolley Cape 1.5 is the number one premium push cart on the market, bringing classic style with an ample use of modern technology. So if you prefer to play your golf at three miles an hour, then the Cape 1.5's polished aluminum frame and use of waxed canvas and leather create a trolley that stands out all over the golf course. You cannot go play around a golf without somebody asking you about your trolley. And it's not just the outstanding product that makes Walker Trolleys different. The company prides itself on outstanding customer service, it's a company of golfers making an outstanding product for golfers. And for a limited time, the company's flagship trolley is on sale for $379. If you've been on the fence, now is the perfect time to get yourself a Walker trolley. Go to walkertrolleys.com, and just for No Laying Up listeners, you can use code NOLANGUP20 to get an additional $20 off your purchase. Walk the game in style with Walker trolleys because golf was meant to be played at three miles an hour. Let's get back to Mike DeVries. This is a thought I haven't fully fully fleshed out, but I, to me it seems like the the golf course design business is is extremely competitive. It's top heavy, you know, with a, with a lot of the names that roll off the top of people's tongues, tip of people's tongues. Uh, you know, just talking about the the Hanses, the Dokes, the Core Crenshaws, all that stuff. And I, I I've gotten this like a weird little sense slash feeling that it almost seems like with how competitive and how things have trended that. At times, it feels like do I guess as an architect yourself, do you feel pressure to almost kind of one up yourself to kind of say like, you know, it, I find usually subtlety to be some of the most interesting features on golf courses. Yet it's harder and harder to justify being subtle when you know clients are expecting bigger, bolder, stronger. You know, I, I don't know if 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 I'm uh, striking a chord here with anything I'm saying, but it seems like there, there's a fine line to be drawn between. You know, being bold and, and justifying, you know, the expense that comes with, you know, some of the, you know some of these big architecture firms, and uh, whether you classify yourself in that category as well, and you know, some of the subtlety that goes into a place like Royal Melbourne that you raved about. I, I threw a lot at you there, but I'm wondering what your reaction to that is. Yeah, that's a it's a that's a great question. So 
the the thing that is you know restraint is this thing that's very difficult to do and i think that becomes really important and the better courses that you see over time they show better restraint with you know not trying to one up each you know if you get on a golf course and hole one is oh that's just this is cool hole two wow that's really cool hole three wow and you can't sustain that golf has a rhythm and a flow to it that really talks about you know the cadence of the round you have 18 holes right and it's not just about the bad term signature hole or um you know it's not about maybe this stretch of holes but how does everything work together so you can analyze a golf course in a lot of different ways and that could be um it's, you know, we got great par fives they have great par threes short fours long fours etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, you could talk about oh this is the best front nine or the best back nine best stretch of holes the dreaded signature hole um, all those types of things but really you have to find you have to find a way to make those things engaging for a long period of time and so restraint is a really difficult thing to do but ultimately i think leads to a better process so you have to have a good client that is understanding of that if you you know what what is the goal is the goal to you know sell real estate so okay we're going to build a really good golf course and we're going to have a name that's behind this pick a tour player um nothing against tour players but my new client matt is a tour he was a tour player for years but you know a lot of times that happens and you know that's a that's a mode to to sell real estate and you know i wasn't a tour player it's a sort of thing of how can we create the best golf and is that golf going to be engaging and long-term engaging not just uh wow that was spectacular but okay i'm on to the next golf. i want people to want to go back and want to play again and again and again and enjoy it again again and again and to do that you have to think about things in a in a longer uh longer time frame and also you have to to get back to that thing you have to like pull back and not pull out all the stops you you, you gotta like every hole can't have 14 different features on it that are overwhelming the golfer and and it's sensory overload and so if you know if one hole has this spectacular view you probably don't really need to do much to it right it's probably got this great view and if you can just set up simple strategy but clear great strategy that makes you execute a shot and at the same token you're looking at the mountains or you're looking at the ocean or or you know some other dramatic feature that could be a city skyline it could be it could be any number of things then i think you you know you probably achieved what you want to do with that hole but how does that hole relate to the hole after it the hole before it and the sequence of the whole round and is there balance so you can think about a golf course from um you know the visual highlights you can think about it from the architectural highlights you can think about it from the shot value highlights and you have to have balance among all of those things and that that requires restraint not just one upping the last thing that you did and that's and you got to have a lot of things coming to come into place to do that and that co that goes like i said with a with a good client that understands that and is it something that uh, i don't know i just thought of this question is it something that you almost don't even want the golfer to notice that they are noticing throughout the course of a round you know i don't 
I, you know, unless I'm really critiquing a golf course, I don't think too much about how it's flowing, whether the balance is right and left to right shots versus right to left or par fours, par five. Is that kind of what you're, you're saying is kind of setting an undertone that, you know, it just naturally exists and flows for the golfer. So they don't have to think about these things when they're playing it. Certainly that's, that's a natural cadence, like a, uh, you know, it's human scale. All golfers are different. So they may, some guys may be super critical and overanalyze uh, every, you know, different shot or hole and how did that relate? And then there's other guys like, Hey, you know, what do I got to do here? Oh, I meant a driver and a, and a four iron. Okay, great. So you're trying to find a way for the golfer to maybe it, let's say if, if it's a private course or a course that someone plays a regular amount of time and repeatedly over a long duration of time that they're constantly seeing different stuff or different stuff is evolving. And those are the really great golf courses of the world. You know, why is Marion good? Why is Crystal Downs good? Why is the old course good? Because you're always constantly seeing stuff that sort of creeps into the mindset and changes kind of how you look at the golf hole maybe the next time that you play it. And not every golf course does that or can do that. So if you can provide an opportunity for uh, a player to maybe look at things consciously and or subconsciously, it leads in, like you're saying, like it just sort of, wow, this just feels good. That leads to a better product. So you think about like Donald Ross golf courses, a lot of Donald Ross golf courses in, in America. There were a lot of projects that he did that he wasn't as involved with as he was with other projects. He's got a lot of great golf courses, had a lot of quote championship golf courses and things like that. But there's a lot of really good Donald Ross golf courses that are just good, solid golf all the way through. And that's a really great trait to think about, you know, Hey, this is a, another solid par four, you know, 380 yards, 410 yards. Uh, here's a nice par three, et cetera. And they seem to fit, right? And they don't maybe blow you away because it might just be a tree-lined, you know, forested course in, you know, North Carolina. It might be um, something more dramatic, but it just depends on that. He finds a way to sort of give you a good, solid golf hole. And over time, that doesn't lose its attraction. It becomes something that, wow, this is just good, solid, fun golf. It's an admirable thing to sort of shoot for. We don't have to over-sensationalize every golf hole. And I think that I, I, I copied this, and I think this came from your website, but you, I believe it's a quote of yours that says, mere length and difficulty in the attempt to create a championship course frequently results in a dull, insepid affair that brings no pleasure to the participants who soon grow weary of such play and go elsewhere. I think you pretty much summed that up there with what you said there. Of, yes, uh, I did. <laughs> no, but like that, that uh, you know, I think when we were up in Michigan, especially it was coming kind of fresh off, you know, the U.S. Open at Torrey Pines, and, and uh, you know, we, we often are, are critical of architecture on the at professional golf level because it just seems to be like what we started this conversation talking about, execution tests versus, you know, finding the best way into the hole. And I, I, I guess I'm more and more amazed that, that more golfers don't embrace that concept more more often. And I always say when it's when I'm not thinking about my golf swing, I'm having a really fun day on the golf course because you're just trying to use the land, trying to use features to get – 
get the ball close to the hole. And, uh, you know, I, I, we allegedly brought you on to talk about Michigan, which I know we're going to get to, but it, and we're about maybe halfway through here, and I haven't asked you the question I promised I'd ask, which is what your golf background was and how you ended up as a, <laughs> as a golf course designer, what your influences were, and, uh, and, yeah, where that starts for you. Yeah, so I was really fortunate that uh, my grandparents and uncle – on my mom's side, they were golfers. My my uncle, who was uh, seven years younger than my mom, and he's only 20 years older than me, he's kind of the cool uncle, you know, and he was a scratch golfer. And so he was kind of the guy that you, you know, you idolized when you're a kid. And I would, like, you know, follow them around and kind of put my ball where my uncle finished and, and um, try and do what he did um, or, you know, beat him or whatever if I could on that little, you know, chip or something like that. And uh, so I just, I learned the game from my grandparents, you know, really when I was, you know, six or eight years old. And I just was fortunate that my family was in Northwest Lower Michigan uh, near Crystal Downs. And so they, they played golf there and I would follow them around. And there was also a little nine hole Frankfurt Golf Club, which uh, unfortunately no longer exists, but was a fun little, you know, executive course, part 32 type thing where you know, you, you went there and they hooked you up with whoever was playing. It could have been some other kids, could have been, uh, an older couple could have been, you know, just random people. And, uh, and it, it taught you a lot about the game. And I learned a lot about, you know, going around with my grandmother and my grandfather and my uncle. And that's one of the really amazing things about golf is that there's this multi-generational ability to sort of transfer on not only the game of golf, but, you know, qualities of life and, and sort of learning about those things. You know, this is when I was eight years old, this is how you mark your ball. You don't like walking somebody's line on the green. Um, you know, you don't jiggle your change, uh, you know, <laughs> don't make noise when someone's playing. So it's, uh, you know, that's a, um, I think, one of the things that doesn't get talked about enough about golf is that there's this opportunity to sort of engage with, with a whole nother set of people that maybe you normally don't to, um, or in my case, my grandparents, I did, but, um, you get to engage with them in a way that you, you know, that's sort of an activity that's, that, uh, that crosses all generations. And, um, ultimately that led to me working in the, in the bag room and the pro shop, when I was 14 for Fred Muller, the, who was a longtime pro at Crystal Downs. And that was a you know fabulous opportunity. And uh, when I was 16, I started working on the grounds crew too. So I was mowing greens and cutting cups and things like that. And, and by the time I was 17, I was only working on the grounds crew. And I just liked getting up in the morning and, you know, going and working on the golf course and then, you know, being done in the middle of the afternoon and I could, go play golf or go, you know, sailing or, you know, see friends or whatever. I was very fortunate to, to be able to do that. And I was working at Crystal Downs, which is one of the 20 great golf courses in the world. And uh, Alistair McKenzie, you know, was the designer. Perry Maxwell was the day-to-day construction guy. So I was able to sort of compare what I was doing there with the municipal golf course in Grand Rapids that I played and the little Frankfurt Golf Club that I talked about. Always kept going back to that throughout high school and college in the summers. Finished college and did something else and figured out their mission in life and mine weren't going in the right direction, and same direction. And 
I uh, got married and went back up and worked on the golf course before I got married. And in a couple of weeks, I, I went in, I said to Fred, I go, keep coming back to golf. He goes, have you met Tom Doak? I'm like, no, <laughs> didn't know who Tom was. You know, he was working on his first golf course, High Point over in Traverse City, about 50 minutes away. So my former boss, the, the green superintendent at Crystal Downs was the project manager, Tom Mead. And so I, you know, I called them up and I went over and I spent the day with Tom Doak and, you know, learned about what they were doing. And it's like, wow, this can be a job. You can connect. I didn't really think about it that way. You know, it was, this is, this is 1988, long time ago. So we went on our honeymoon, came back and I started working for Tom, worked with him for about two and a half, three years, helping him finish up high point. And then uh, down in Myrtle beach at the Heathlands course at the legends complex. And then I went back up to Michigan and we built the black forest and I ran that project and then we didn't have another, another project to go to. So I ended up going back to uh, school, getting my master's in landscape architecture from the university of Michigan, which was a different program uh, there. It was in the school of natural resources and environment, which is most landscape architecture programs are, are in with architects and engineers and it's all, all design sort of oriented and based. Uh, Michigan's program is unique that you have three disciplines where you study the landscape, um, the design, the design of the landscape, landscape architecture, where you study like hardcore bugs and trees that, you know, hard sciences of, of, of the environment. And then, um, you, the social sciences, which is, you know, how do we react to the landscape and how do we, um, respond to those types of things? So these three major disciplines, and I was able to study ecosystems and plant systems and how they, you know, could be utilized on, on golf courses. And so that was kind of what my main research and, and uh, practicum sort of results were. And so that was a really, you know, fantastic sort of deal. And then when I finished, I did some work for uh, Tom Fazio on a couple different projects. I'd worked on a course that they did in Northern Michigan at Treetops Resort and in a separate capacity, not necessarily working for them at that time, I was working for the resort uh, in the middle of kind of doing my master's work. And uh, so I got to know some of their guys and I ended up working for him for about 15 months on different projects, um, sort of being the on-site guy um, they needed for a couple of different things. And then I, since then I've been doing my own stuff, um, you know, for the last, 25, six years or whatever. So one thing that, that stuck out to me as we, as we talk about Michigan is one that that's going to be highlighted in an episode, uh, episode three, I believe of our series here is the public golf specifically around Grand Rapids. And your name is all over that with three courses that we played Pilgrim's run diamond Springs and the mines. And I, I am amazed by, and Andy Johnson has called this, you know, the, the best, most affordable golf trip you could take is to Grand Rapids. I forget what his exact words were, but I, I want to just understand for you what, what makes it work? What makes public golf does not work in a lot of places for a variety of reasons. And I'm curious as to why you would say, I would call all three of these courses to be great successes, at least from the experiences we've had. Why does it work in Grand Rapids and what makes these places special? Well, first of all, in, in, in Michigan in general, there's um, there's a lot of good terrain. You know, we have the glaciers that came down, you know, thousands, millions of years ago, but, you know, more recently, 10,000 years ago or whatever. And it kind of mashed everything up. 
and that ended up leaving us with these glacial deposits that in a lot of cases can be real sandy. So they're free draining, they are great for farming. So you, you find a lot of excellent farm, you know, whether it's fruit farming or corn, things like that. Michigan is a, you know, a pretty good producer of, of all those types of things. And that applies, you know, turf is basically a crop. So, <laughs> so um, there's a good opportunity there and you've got rolling terrain. So there's, you know, from real radical movements or, or bigger formations, like you would find in the Northern lower peninsula with, with some, you know, bigger hills like Boyne and, you know, those areas or there's ski hills and, and ski resorts and things like that to, you know, gentler rolling terrain that you find in Southern Michigan and Southeast Michigan, you know, tends to be generally flatter and maybe less, less sandy soil there. That's more of the outwash just from a geologic standpoint. So there's really good land in Grand Rapids. There's a lot of farming around Grand Rapids and there were opportunities and maybe a farm, a family farm or whatever. And, and they were sort of transitioning out and farming maybe wasn't, you know, as good as it, as it had been, you know, I'm talking, this is maybe, you know, 40 or 50 years ago in, in some cases, and they just, you know, golf was starting to come up, you know, Arnie was, you know, bringing the army and, you know, Jack was around. So in the sixties and seventies, all of a sudden, you know, we needed more golf courses and it was easy to convert a golf course from uh, farming or there's a, here's a guy who's got a tractor. He understands how to grow grass. He understands how to grow plants. And, um, they, they produced a lot of, you know, some very basic, uh, golf courses that were, you know, that were well kept up just cause they had a decent amount of sandy soil. And they also had a plentiful supply of water. We got a lot of fresh water, obviously with the great lakes, they're able to provide a decent product and it's pretty inexpensive to build and or maintain. There's been kind of a, you know, there's, there's been an opportunity there uh, for a lot of that to happen. And, you know, some of those courses are still around. Some of those courses have disappeared because now they're, you know, there's more development. Grand Rapids is a growing town. Uh, and then there are, you know, there are opportunities to, to do things. And in, in the case, I've been, you know, very fortunate with the three projects that you mentioned, Pilgrim's Run, Diamond Springs, and the Mines, where, you know, I had owners that wanted to, you know, build, you know, better than average golf. And we had really good sites and we had decent soils and they put that effort into it. And, and it's, it's been really successful. It aged really well too. I mean, I've, I was surprised that Pilgrim's Run felt newer to me than was it 98 that it opened? Does that sound right? Yes. Uh -huh. yeah. And so I want to talk about Pilgrim's Run, especially because this is the, the course that I keep going back to. Uh, I think Kingsley was my favorite on the trip, and I think Pilgrim's Run was my second favorite. If I'm, and I'd have to, you know, really audit that and think that through. But I, I, I'm leaning towards that. I really am. I felt like it was just, it was very thought provoking. And what I love the most about golf is, you know, firm turf, like fast conditions. And this didn't even have that. I mean, it's in a forest, and I still loved it that much. And uh, I, I'm curious if, uh, you know. It felt like a very unique blend matchup in terms of architectural and strategical interest in a golf course versus a you know a public golf course that gets a lot of play from people that I would say probably don't even like tend to notice or think about uh, you know golf course architecture 
in that way. And I'm wondering what it's like to design a course. Uh, you know, maybe Pilgrim's Run is a, a different question because one, tell us about the concept of that golf course and how it, uh, it, I guess, how it evolved from what it was originally concepted out to be to, to how it came together. The owners, the Van Campen family, which is the Van Campen Mutual Funds, um, you know, very successful business organization. They had this large piece of property and they ended up hiring a local superintendent, Chris Shoemaker, who this, he was down in the Saugatuck area in the mid nineties. And they knew him from the course there. And Mr. Van Campen wasn't really a big golfer, but he had a number of employees who did various things for him. And they were like, you know, Hey, we've got this, we've got this property. Why don't we build a golf course? You know, this would be cool to have like clients here and, you know, we could have a golf course and he thought it was a good idea. And, um, and he thought it would be a, a fun project for them to sort of be involved. So there were six of them. They were going to all design three holes a piece. So sounds kind of crazy, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so ended up that, that Chris, um, he sort of analyzed the property that they, that they had, which was, which was over on the West side, uh, down near Grand Haven. And he thought they didn't have enough property there to do, you know, do a full golf course there. And he searched and he found this property north of Grand Rapids, which where, where Pilgrim's Run is. And so ultimately they ended up buying the property and they, they just literally randomly picked numbers out of a hat. Um, you know, I got holes four, seven and, 15 or whatever. And they did a little horse trading and, you know, cause somebody, Chris had done a, Chris had done a um, preliminary routing. And so that, you know, the holes were sort of, this is a par three, four, five, and kind of outfit, you know, some guys wanted to have, you know, a par three and a par four and a par five, and someone wanted to have three holes in a row or whatever the deal was. And it was all different for everybody. They had different ideas of, of golf and they were different levels of golfer too, really good players. And then, you know, just sort of average players too, but they were all passionate about it. And then I got involved. Um, really, um, I, I was um, connected to Chris via the Toro distributor. And he said, you know, you should give this guy a call da, da, da. he needs help on this and that. And I ended up uh, meeting with Chris and, and then finding out about the process and they, they'd sort of cleared the front nine. They'd started opening up, um, part of the, um, the, the project there, you know, cutting trees down and, and sort of some basic grading and things like that. Just, you know, just, just cleaning up the site cause it's all forested. And so there's a lot of work involved in that. And, uh, ultimately it ended up that I ended up consulting on the whole thing and, and was really taking the all these ideas and concepts and some of the guys were like you know they were just sort of taking what chris and i gave them and said wow that's that's really cool great and some of them wanted to do things more specifically and uh and then we had to figure out a way to you know make it all work together i had one of the gentlemen you know he wasn't really involved in sort of the as much the design process but he wanted to be involved in he came out one day and just edged bunkers with me. And we were, we were on the six hole and, you know, he had a shovel in his hand and we were edging bunker. We were, there was a boom box playing music. And, you know, it was a, that, that's, that was an experience for him. So, so it was really different for everybody. And, um, um, you know, I give Chris Shoemaker a lot of credit, um, because, you know, we had to figure out a way to, uh, he and I had to figure out a way to get all this stuff to fit together and, and to blend into one golf course. And, uh, and what you 
have is a, you know, is a very spacious property and it's a lush environment. You know, it's bent grass, tees, greens, and fairways. So it's, you know, it feels um, like a private golf course for a lot of people and you're sort of separated. You know, most of the holes are, you don't really, you, you have some windows into other holes, but a lot of the holes are kind of isolated from each other. And um, so it's a, it was really just awesome. And uh, they've been, they've been fantastic uh, people and, you know, they're just, it's a, it, they do a great job there. And I, I was, a, it, it seemed hyperbolic when I said it and I, I still will stand by it though. The comp I had after playing it with what you were just talking about for the holes being separated and, and wooded and all that. Honestly, it felt like a public Pine Valley, and I'm wondering if you'd ever heard that from anyone else. No, not that specifically, but that's a high compliment. Thank you. <laughs> it's, just, it's like what the, the feeling it has. You're exactly right, though. It feels like a private golf course. Like it just, uh, I don't, I don't know how else to describe it. And it, I, I couldn't help but notice too, at each of the courses of yours that we played on this trip, I noticed how how stout and thought-provoking the opening holes were. And I'm just curious if you had any specific philosophy when it came to uh, when it came to opening holes. I'm thinking of the par 5 first at Kingsley and especially that, that par 5 first at, at Pilgrim's Run that I mentioned where, just to give, you, give the listeners an idea of what I'm talking about, it's always hard to describe golf holes, but it's a par 5 that bends to the left, um, but there's a couple bunkers that kind of pinch the fairway. And the best route to the green is to hit it directly in front of the bunker that guards the right side of the fairway, as that gives you like a shoot through the trees to hit it through, to hit towards a narrow green. Yet, if you're too far left, you got to shape it around some trees that almost play like centerline trees in between the fairway and the green. Yet, if you drive it too far, you could end up in the bunker. And then on your layup, you got to steer it around those trees, and maybe to get you know the further left you go, the better angle you get down the green. That's kind of the layers of which we're talking about, just to kind of set the scene. But uh, yeah, I'm wondering if that's a specific thing that uh, you know you you learned somewhere, or picked up somewhere, or or that you make sure you do with golf courses you do. Well, I, I don't think it's necessarily that I have a sort of a set program for that, but I guess it's also um, there's always this thing of the gentle handshake, right? I guess I, you know, I grew up at Crystal Downs working and playing there and there's definitely not a gentle handshake there. So I guess I'm not afraid of the opening hole asking you questions and making you figure things out. And that maybe is not necessarily the most difficult hole on the course, but it, it, it can definitely be challenging. And so, you know, having a par five to do that uh, is, is often a, you know, a, a good way to, to engage the golfer, do that where they can sort of you know, they can swing away and let the ball fly a little bit, but they can't be too reckless either. If they're reckless, then, then, you know, then they're going to pay for it. Right. So it can't be boring. It's got to, it's got to start engaging the golfer right from the bat. And I think that's kind of what you get in different ways there. Uh, Kingsley's, you know, intimidating the scale of it and, and stuff, but I think it, you know, I think it plays fair. Pilgrim's run is like you say, there's this gap between the trees. There's a, there's a, pine tree there on the left that sort of gives you this angle and degree for the, you know, really for the bigger hitters. I mean, for the average player, it's certainly a much safer play to just play out left and then have a wedge in. And um, it's not super long, but you got to hit sort of a quality shot and a crisp shot. And there's a, there's something to, the, to that, to not necessarily making it too crazy for them, but they, it's not a, it's not a pushover either. 
And, and so tell me about, uh, you know, comparing, I didn't get to go to diamond Springs, but you know, the guys came back, we kind of just were, we couldn't get a word in just each raving about the, the different experiences we had on that day. What's uh, it's also within earshot of grand rapids, kind of in the opposite direction, but same blueprint, it's affordable public golf yet uh, from what I understand, a different, a different golf course than pilgrims run. What was, what was the order order of operations there? Which one came first and why does diamond Springs work kind of in the similar vein of where we're talking about why pilgrims run works? Yeah, so Pilgrim's Run was was the first course, and Chris Shoemaker, who was the superintendent there, he ended up leaving Pilgrim's Run and had some other guys, and he was involved. He was kind of the um, initial guy at Diamond Springs also. So it was an interesting, you know, Chris and I had worked together, obviously, at Pilgrim's Run for a couple of years and really, you know, knew each other, and, um, and he had this new project. And the concept of making it, because this is this is further this is a little bit further removed a little more of a you know but they're both removed from grand rapids 30 minutes for say pilgrims run and maybe 35 40 minutes for for diamond springs he found a really good track of land again it was very sandy um and it was but it was flat it was a generally a flat piece of ground with a couple of um, long eskers that go through the property and for people that don't know an esker is like a is a long ridge landform that's really a glacial deposit that can be anything from you know a, a small bump to um, a large formation that maybe is 10 or 15 feet high and broad enough to put uh, tees or greens on uh, or something to drive over. So it was a really interesting, uh, cool, cool piece of property. It was re- relatively easy to walk, but then had these interesting features kind of crisscrossing east-west across the property and in the northeast side of the property there was a deep ravine that was an old mill and so there's a basically a gorge that was 20 or 30 feet deep and from 100 to 200 250 feet wide that you know used to have a there's still a stream at the bottom of it but used to have a you know some sort of probably a flour mill or I don't think it was a sawmill I think it was a flour mill of some type and um, processed and stuff. This is probably going back to the 1800s. And so there's this, you know, this really dramatic feature in the, in the, in the ground. And so really good piece of property, trying to figure out how to do it. Um, again, Chris was um, kind of did the initial routing and all. And, um, and we talked about, you know, how it could work and this and that, made some adjustments and things. Ended up building you know, a golf course that has one cut of grass. So, uh, well, two cuts of grass. There's greens height, and then there's basically fairway. And Chris was looking at how can we do this, you know, being a superintendent, he was like, how can we maintain this golf course and do it really, really efficiently and inexpensively, but still make the golf engaging and fun. And so, you know, the way that he, he was thinking about that was, well, it's, I can mow one height of cut for tees, fairways, rough, et cetera. And then it just goes to woodland or outside, you know, slash native rough or fescue, however you want to think about it. And then there's a greens height, you know, and greens are bent grass and and we can have some contour and things like that. Um, So it could be very walkable, um, but still cart friendly and and all that kind of stuff. And... um, that's kind of how the whole, that's how the, the process started. And, um, 
ended up, you know, being a very different experience because it's bluegrass fairways, uh, bent greens, um, but then just a super wide cut. So think of like the, how the old course is really. I mean, it's just, it's, it's one wide cut and then it goes into native and uh, the average golfer can hit his ball out there and, you know, find it really quickly and, you know, advance it. And the really good players got to think about, well, I don't have this 25 yard wide fairway that I have to hit. So I have to figure out what's the best way to get to the pin and wh what's my best angle to do that for where the pin is that day. And so it makes them hit, try and hit certain shots to get to a certain position to have an advantage. Gosh, yeah, we played a lot of golf in this trip, and here it is another course that I didn't, you know, that I'm that I'm kicking myself that I didn't get to play. But you know, we also got a, a look at uh, nine holes of your course, the Mines, which is, uh, you know, I would say Diamond Springs and Pilgrims Run are are along the same vein, but it seems like the Mines is a very different project. What can you tell us about that course? Yeah, so it's right downtown. <laughs> it's literally five minutes from the heart of Grand Rapids. Uh, and it's, it's astonishingly over, close. It really is. Yeah. 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 Five minutes in traffic. I mean, it, that's like hitting every light. Uh, it's over a portion of the old gypsum mines, which the gypsum mines in Grand Rapids covered about 600 acres and were mined from they mined gypsum from like civil war time into the 1980s. And this property uh, is over a portion of that. So the mining's all underground. Uh, what's called the room and pillar thing where they extract these veins of gypsum and then they leave these large caverns in there. The ground above it is not necessarily suitable for building development because you might have some subsidence and things like that. So you might get a sinkhole or something like that over time. Uh, but it's the upper, the upper property was all forested and, you know, it looked like you were in Northern Michigan, uh, you know, fully forested area right next to, neighborhoods and stuff. And so, um, uh, Dan Schimmel, the owner found this property and family business, uh, was involved with sand and gravel development and things like that. So, you know, he knew all about these materials and things like that. He got this property he's a big golfer and we had played golf probably five years before he got this property. And he called me kind of out of the blue and, and I was kind of scratching my head and trying to remember why do I know this name? <laughs> but ultimately I was, it like clicked, uh, went down and, you know, the amazing thing is I grew up in Grand Rapids and this is kind of on the West side. I was on the East side of Grand Rapids, but I just never really had an idea that there was this kind of wild ground, you know, right in the heart of Grand Rapids. And there's four different sort of sections of the property. And those, those sections are divided by a road and by big power lines. So it was a challenge to kind of uh, develop a routing there that worked because you, you can't change the road, you can't change the power lines, things like that, which sounds like it'd be really disjointed, but essentially you go from where the clubhouse is, you go across and you play holes one to four, and then you, you just cross the road and or go under the tunnel and, and then you play a couple of holes next to the clubhouse and then you go to a far section so you kind of weave your way between basically three of the four sections of the property you know it's a hilly undulating property you see some development some neighborhoods on one side of it but really you don't you don't you don't see much of you know sort of civilization right in the down right in downtown grand rapids so it was really really fun project 
Um, Dan's a, was a great owner. He's actually just sold the, the golf course to a young guy. So, you know, it looks like, you know, we have a new owner and I've known the, the new owner, Chris Sobiak for a while too. And he's, he's excited about it and it's been in the golf business for a while. So it's, I think it's going to continue for, for quite a bit. And it's, um, maybe the most difficult golf course I've, I've built. It's, it's got some challenging long par fours on it that makes it, makes it stout, but those are sort of par fives for the average golfer anyway. So that's, that's, um, that's all right. Busy place, man. That place was absolutely humming. I think we didn't have a tea time until about 6.40 PM or something like that. And they were, could, didn't have carts for us. It was so busy. And it just seems like a community center. And I think that's, uh, it's really, really freaking cool. And then I guess that brings us to Kingsley, which I can't believe took us this long to get to. I know we've, we've, we've touched on it and, uh, and, uh, mentioned a couple things here and there about it, but it, uh, it was the highlight of the trip for, I think pretty much all of us. we had, you know, heard rave things about it and getting to spend the day with you, I think definitely, uh, definitely helped it. But wh- what's it like designing a, a golf course like Kingsley, a private golf course versus the public ones that we've discussed and, you know, what, what, what freedoms come with that? What are some things that are making it a little bit more difficult and, uh, what, uh, what, what springs to mind is that we'll get you excited to talk about Kingsley, I guess. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, public versus private. Obviously, you've got to think about how many people are playing the golf course at one time. You know, is this, um, you know, some private clubs are real busy, some are less busy. This was going to have a national membership. Um, the, the two owners, Ed Walker and, and Art Preston, the guys that founded the, the club, they wanted to have a great golf course. That was their, their main goal, and they, they're, you know, passionate golfers themselves. And so that was, that was a particularly important aspect for them. Um, Fred Muller, the, the pro at the Crystal Downs, you know, knew both of them and was, was really involved with the project too. But I didn't have like a massive committee. You know, I had Ed Walker who lives in, who lives in Traverse City and Art was, you know, around occasionally here and there because he lived down south. And then, you know, Fred was, was involved and, you know, was my first sort of real job boss and has, you know, sort of coached me in golf throughout my life. And so, you know, having him as a sounding board was, was really good. Back kind of to public versus private, they were going to always have kind of a membership that wasn't going to be a lot of play, at least not, you know, it's, it's not like every day of the summer was going to be full up. I mean, it was going to be busy, but it's going to fluctuate and it's going to be the sort of thing where people are going to probably come and, and stay for several days and they're going to want to play golf for several days, stay in the cabins, play 36 holes a day or play a different, different set of tees, things like that. So that gave us a lot of flexibility to do different things with regards to how kind of how holes cross over and fit. And so the way that the property is there, which is a very, uh, there's about 120, uh, no, 100, probably 105 feet of overall high to low elevation. But there's some areas that are choppier and, and more, more undulating than other parts. And so it was either how is it, how is it easy to get to or away from those those areas of the property and how do we make that blend in with everything else and make sure that it's a good rhythm and again rhythm and flow to how the golf course went we want it definitely wanted it to be walkable uh so that people had an opportunity to really you know feel the ground and feel the cadence of the of the golf course that gave us the ability to have sort of sort of shared tee box locations which you wouldn't you know likely do in a public golf 
setting type facility because that could lead to conflicts or waiting for this group or this group's crossing in front of the other group. But if you're in a private setting, it's like, hey, Jack, how's it going? How's your round today? You know, you, you sort of see it's a social game, right? So you have the opportunity to to sort of engage with people in a different realm or, um, you know, hey, I saw you three Jack that last hole or whatever. So, so you know, that's that's fun because it, it becomes, it, it's a whole nother sort of dimension that that gives you the opportunity to do things. A vibe can greatly contribute to somebody's experience. You know, that's the exact kind of thing. It sounds like you spend a lot of time thinking through. Yeah, I think that that was, that was really important because Ed and Art, you know, they traveled a lot, you know, over to Ireland and, and, um, and other places and played other golf together. And, you know, they always had a group of guys. And so, you know, it's, for them, it was a social sort of thing. It's like, you know, Hey, we're out with our buddies. It's kind of like the, it's like the no leaning up guys going and everybody's, you know, giving each other a hard time. Right. I mean, it, there's that aspect of it. It's not just about the golf. It's also about, you know, being with your buddy, you know, having a good time. That's an aspect you know, golf that, yeah, you have that with other sports, but it's usually like the activity is concentrated on that. And then you have that afterwards where golf, you have it during the activity and also afterwards, you know, that lives on when you, when you win two bucks or five bucks or whatever your bet is from your, from your buddy, um, that lives on until the next time you play. Right. So I think, I think that's what they were. One of the things that they were really trying to achieve there was, was to, you know, bring golfers together and to have them engage with each other and, and be really excited about it. That was fun to, to try and figure out that type of stuff. And at Kingsley, we were able to uh, bring that into, you know, think about the golf really, really intently, and then think about how that, that action works. So the first hole is a big par five that goes out. And then you have what I call the South 40, which is the 40 acres that's really holes two, three, four, five, six, and then seven, leaving that that sort of section of the property. And there's a big sinkhole in the middle of that, that holes two, four, and six go around. And so there's, it's almost kind of a double figure eight where you sort of get to preview several of the pins before you get to that green, uh, before you play them. But you also get to kind of come back around and see parts of the landforms from a completely from a 90 degree angle or 180 degree angle, and so you over time you develop this subconsciously you sort of develop this appreciation for the land and the diversity of the land and the different types of shots you can play, and so it's really engaging for the members to you know to come and and to you know to bring new people to it or to play with members that have been members and friends of theirs for a long time uh, because they always have kind of an opportunity to play something different or to choose a different tee from a different angle where we have some opportunities to do that on the golf course there yeah that's now that you mentioned that it's kind of like i remember getting out on maybe like the third hole and you do see so many other holes on that front nine that your mind, it's almost hard to stay focused on the hole you're playing because you're like, whoa, what's that one? Where were you coming in from that one? Like, and it, it seemed like there was too just so much. Uh, we play, I think we played a different tee box on pretty much every hole in the afternoon round from the morning round. It seemed like there was so much attention paid to you could play the ninth hole from, you know, I think we played a 90 degree difference. You play it straight on to the left side of that green or from the left side 
hitting kind of uh, down the line with the slope to your left to it. And it just seemed like there was a ton of thought that went into the different ways you could play a hole um, if you were playing a 36-hole day or the different tee bo- different tee boxes you could use or make up your own routing. Is that fair to say? Uh, certainly, yeah. And, and the ninth hole is those tee locations were just there in the natural landscape. And, you know, we just leveled off some of those, those, you know, those little mounds and hills and stuff and created, and and we had the opportunity to do that. And being a par three, you want to have more tee space if you can, because there's more divots, right? It's a short, it was, and it's a short par three too. So you got a lot of short irons hitting in there. And so you wanted to have that opportunity to try and provide different things. And if you came there with a group of guys and in the morning you play the south orientation on nine and in the afternoon you play the west orientation, it's a little different difference in length. It's a little different orientation depending on the wind that day. Sometimes the wind turns around. So from morning to afternoon, that can happen. And I think, you know, there's five par threes on the on the golf course. So the ninth hole has the, the south tees. That's the only south to north orientation from uh from a par three so you know if you had to play one you know for a tournament or something like that i think that gives more variety but um the west tees are super fun and um you know they're they're great also so you know it's it's serving its purpose pretty well it's a special special place and that uh i promise i'm gonna let you out of here soon we just played so many darn courses of yours on this trip it takes a while to get through here but the last one and we caught, uh, topped off the trip at Gray Walls up on the Upper Peninsula. This is a course that I have to admit, I think I was beat down on the trip by the time we got to it, and I would love a second shot at it. So I'll say this. Would, would you consider Gray Walls to be polarizing or more polarizing than some of your other designs? Not uh, not usually. Okay. Um, I think it's very different. It is. Because the UP has got some really... You know, it's got some varied terrain and crazy stuff going on. So it's a big property, 200 uh, feet in elevation. So, you know, pretty extreme in that regards. And, you know, how do you compress that into it? And then you've, you know, all over the property, you've got, you know, you've got 50, 60 foot granite walls and you've got um, rock outcropping sticking out of the middle of a fairway here or there. Um, those are just sort of natural features that, you can blast them, but <laughs> they're really unique. So how can we, how could we try and integrate that stuff and, and get those things into, um, to fit into a golf course? And that was a real challenge, but it also gave you some very definite limitations and stuff. So like, Hey, that's such a great natural feature. I don't want to disturb it. If I can, how can we use that as a, as an element of the golf hole? For instance, on the fourth hole, there's sort of this this big high upper left plateau for the fairway and then there's sort of a lower one on the right that bends out and you can't even see some of that because of the angle where you're coming from the green because there's a rock outcropping that kind of sticks out short of that and then there's a there's a rock outcropping that separates the two it's a medium long par 4 the left side of the hole is just hillside where there's rocks and trees and and things like that and right the green sort of sets on a flatter plateau and behind it there's a there's a big rock face that's maybe 40 50 feet tall but it's well past the you know it's past the green and things like that but that center 
rock outcropping that separates the, the upper left plateau and the lower right plateau, separates that, provides for definition, but you also can get a really weird bounce. <laughs> so, um, you know, hopefully you don't. But if you, you know, if you're a big hitter, you can crest that upper left fairway and you can have a short iron in. And if you're, you know, if you're a slicer of the ball, like a lot of, a lot of, uh, you know, average golfers are, you're probably going to end up in the lower fairway on the right and still have a pretty good angle straight up at the green. So there were ways of, of sort of dealing with that and keeping those types of things in there. There also was a knob. There was a little, there was a very small sort of rock outcropping about 25 yards short of the green. And we had that, that was one of the four little places where we blasted, we, you know, we put charges in the ground and blasted that rock out because that one sort of obscured the green from the lower um, right section of the fairway. And that, that was sort of like, that's kind of the safe drive. Right. And so I was like, we got to get that out of there. You know, can we do that? And they blasted that out and then we put soil over it and, you know, it ends up working out really, really well. So there were compromises that you had to make. There were certain things that you had to do because of just the way the terrain was. And that that leads to a, you know, really unusual, you know, sort of collection and, and certain things that are that are kind of crazy that you just aren't going to see on another golf course. Yeah, that I, there were so many holes in that golf course that I, like that stretch from four, five, and six is what I'm thinking of the most in terms of, the way those rock outcroppings are used. That fifth hole, I wanted to hit that shot about 50 times. It was one of those where I had a weird sense on the tee that I was like, you know what? I know, I think I need to go so much further left with this if I want to put it on the green, then it probably looks like it to my eye from the tee. And uh, yeah, I just had never seen a golf course that included so much you know, rock outcroppings in, in, in the places that it had and how, how just bold the terrain was of that place. It was just a... It, uh, it, it, it was, it, like I said, like you said, I guess, very different than what the rest of your golf courses that we played on this trip. And uh, I was just curious as to, you know, what, one, do you have video of all of the times you, you use charges to blow up stuff on that? I'd love to see some of those. Uh, I never did. No, I never, never took um, video of that. I mean, when that stuff happens, you, you don't want to be near it. You want to, you want to be safely away because, <laughs> uh, you know, things can happen. It, it's, it's mother nature. So it is a bit difficult, but um, that was a very, um, you know, we, we only spent $27,000 in blasting, I think. And that's not much at all. You know, blasting is pretty expensive. You're, you're, it's really expensive fireworks. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, compared to other projects, we, we did, we did really quite well with regards to that budgetary wise. And then also kind of retaining the character of, you know, those unique, those unique features that are there. And, um, and that, that takes the place of, you know, bunkers and, and, and other types of things that, you know, might be, you know, there's, there, there are some Creek crossings, but they're not necessarily right next to a green or anything on the golf course, but only 38 bunkers or 30, maybe 36 bunkers there. And I think rock out, I don't know. I haven't counted all the rock outcropping cells. So there's probably at least 40 out rock outcroppings too, depending on how many you count or, you know, five big ones. And, you know, I don't know how many small ones, maybe. 
Yeah, so I, if that place gets real, real firm, I would love to see how how far some of those drives would go, or how uh, how challenging that golf course would play, because it's 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 dramatic terrain and uh, some big ups and downs. I, mean, I imagine that's got to be one of your most challenging construction projects to date. Is that fair to say? Oh yeah, certainly. Yeah, yeah, very difficult. The amazing thing is despite the, all the rock that's everywhere, there are places where you could move over and you could just put the dipper down on the, on the excavator and you'd hit pure sand for, you know, as far as you could dig. So the whole lower uh, south end of the property, holes 11, 12, 13, 14, um, 16, that's all smaller, undulating, um, rolling, you know, really, really good golf land you know doesn't have the rock the rock outcroppings are sort of north of that on the right side of 16 and then further north but that's you know that's just that's just pure butter down there that stuff's really great and so we're fortunate that we had that opportunity to use that material for greens mix and for you know places where there might be rock that we wanted to cover or have some cushion over that made you know construction really well so the Property drains really well. Turf agronomically works really well. And it's amazing to think that, you know, you wouldn't think that with all the rock everywhere that you could grow grass. But Craig does a phenomenal job and, you know, he gets a lot. There's a lot of play there. So it's long, long daylight hours and um, far north and on the western end of the eastern time zone. So they, yeah, they're putting carts away at quarter to 11 at night Jeez, uh, because it's, it's just that busy. Yeah. And, you know, it's spectacular views. Yeah. yeah, we need some more time up in the UP. I think it, uh, two weeks on the road and have that one as our anchor. We, I, I know I, for one, probably didn't appreciate it uh, as much as I as I, uh, as I probably should have. And just looking at pictures right now, I want to get back and hit some of those shots again. So They got the, they got the old course there, too, which is really... Uh, I know. We uh, want to see Yeah, the original, original nine by Langford and Moreau is... I've been helping Craig just mark things out. And when he gets a chance, he's, he's been mowing those out. And that, those are really phenomenal you know, on a par with, uh, with Lawsonia Lynx holes. I mean, it's, um, it's, it's really a neat place. Fantastic area. It really is. So, well, with that, we're going to get you out of here, Mike. I greatly, greatly appreciate, uh, you coming on the podcast, sharing some stories for spending the day with us up at Kingsley and, uh, really adding a ton, ton of insight into, uh, our video project and, uh, this complimentary feature to it as well. And uh, I'm excited, excited for the world to see it. If you're listening to this past, you know, December of 2021, it's out there and you can watch it on our YouTube channel. If you're listening to it as it comes out, uh, it'll be featured several, several weeks coming here uh, on YouTube on Wednesday nights at 9 PM and uh, they'll live there forever. So thanks again for everything, Mike. And I uh, hope we cross paths soon. And I uh, hope it's, hope it's down to seven mile beach and I'll get on a dozer. If, uh, if you still need any work. <laughs> Absolutely. We got to get you down there. Get the, get the whole crew down there. Uh, we got, we got rakes and shovels. We can have you use too. That'd be no problem. <laughs> it's probably safer. <laughs> safer get that detail work in. Um, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. Uh, loved, uh, love what you guys do. And, uh, was really fun, uh, being out there with you when you played Kingsley and, and, um, glad you got around to see some of the great stuff we have in Michigan here. Well, next time, make sure no, uh, no jet skis or whatever, uh, uh, water skiing (laughs) that put you out injured so you couldn't play with Uh, us. (laughs) Yeah, that, uh, that was, that was, yeah, definitely. I'm off the injured reserve now, so we're all, we're all good. I appreciate that. Thanks. So thanks again, Mike. We'll chat soon. Take care. All right, cheers. Cheers. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. Yeah. Johnny, that's 
Better than most. How about him? That is better than most. 